Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations for me and my guests who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Hey guys, I'm really excited to have Jared back with us today. Um, maybe I should call you Dr. Brown. No, call me Jared. <laughs> Jared, <laughs> he's my brain expert, and I'm really excited about him sharing today with us about confabulation and suggestibility. I think that these were brand new concepts to me um, as of a couple of years ago, and so it helped, as I understood those, it helped me understand my kids so much better. And so I would love for you just to kind of lay out both of those and what they are and why maybe some of our kiddos struggle with those. Yeah, you bet. So these are really exciting topics if you're a researcher, but very scary topics if you're a parent. And if these are introduced into the mental health field, this could result in like a misdiagnosis. If it's introduced into the educational arena, it may result in like the development of like an ineffective education plan. And where I do a lot of my work in is the criminal justice system. So if these are introduced into those equations, that could contribute to like false confessions, eyewitness testimony issues, wrongful imprisonment. So very important topics, regardless of what angle you come from, if it's medical education, mental health, or the criminal justice system. So confabulation, think of it as a type of false memory creation where a person who confabulates is not doing it intentionally. They don't know they're doing it. So there's no intent to mislead another person. It's a type of false narrative where the person truly believes what they're saying is true, even though maybe you as the parent know that they're just making up some wild, crazy story where it, you know, it's, it's completely false. But confabulation can be very detailed and sound very coherent as well. So it's sometimes very difficult to determine if it's true or not. People who confabulate are doing it to fill in gaps in their memory in some cases where they may not know the answer to something. So their brain just kicks in and fills it in with whatever sounds good. It's been referred to as honest lying in the research literature. It's different than malingering. Malingering is like the intent to lie and secondary gain. Confabulation, there's no intent to deceive, even though it's a lie. Or it's taken at a temporal context, which basically means what the person is saying could be true, but they think what the reporting happened to them this morning you later find out they're talking about something that happened two months ago or two years ago. So it's really all over the map. We'll we'll break it all down. Regardless of what kind of false memory it is, we all do this from time to time. Human beings confabulate. But people with like neurodevelopmental disorders, brain injuries, they typically do it a little more frequently. So this topic has been studied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over in the research literature. There's books actually written on confabulation. So it's unintentional. Someone typically is trying to fill in a gap in their memory. 
there's various forms of this as well. There's something called spontaneous confabulation, where you might see this more commonly like in a nursing home, working with people's Alzheimer's or dementia or things of that nature. There's forced confabulation, where if someone's being interviewed by a police officer, that may trigger someone to confabulate because they're asking all kinds of direct questions. And rather than the person saying, I don't know the answer to that, their brain just invents something that sounds good. And then that is when sometimes like a false confession can happen. Confabulation can occur as a result of someone overhearing a conversation. I've consulted on cases where this has actually happened. Don't want to scare anybody, but I've consulted on cases where there's been false allegations of abuse, child protection got involved because the kid went to school reported they were being abused by parents, child protection gets involved. Months and months go by, they finally find found out that the, the person overheard a conversation amongst friends or watched a movie and heard that same story in a movie or went online and read something online. So for brains of people like with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or kids with like severe head trauma, their brains can't make sense of it. So they they hear it somewhere and then they go report it as fact, even though it maybe never even happened to them. People with vivid imaginations, like more fantasy prone, where they have a hard time distinguishing between what's true and what's not, may be more prone to doing this. People with source monitoring deficits have been noted to have this more. Source monitoring deficits are people that get things mixed up in terms of the source of their memory. This comes into play with eyewitness testimony. So Laura, you and I are out walking, we see a car accident. Maybe I have source monitoring deficits. I get mixed up in terms of, did I witness that car accident with you? Or did I go home, watch the news, and I saw it on the news? I get the source of my memory mixed up. That's source monitoring deficits. So to recap, and then I'll stop for a second, see if you have any questions. Confabulations are inaccurate types of false memories that they could be partially true, where then it's combined with all this other false stuff and it gets all convoluted. It could be taken out of temporal context where maybe it did happen, but the dates and the times are all mixed up. People who confabulate are not doing it intentionally to mislead. And it's been referred to as honest lying in the research literature. And I'll go a lot deeper in a minute, but I just wanted to stop and see if you had any thoughts, questions. I have so many thoughts. I feel like I just learned so much. Yeah. Um, I see this all the time with my kids. And so it's so fascinating just to hear the, the science and all the things behind it. But I, I'm as a parent, I struggle so much with this because it's so hard. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to figure anything out. And when you have several, several people who struggle with this, it's like, what in the world happened? Like, there's no, there's like no truth of what happened. And so that makes it really difficult. And I know that Andrew several times has just, and asking him questions so often say something and I'm like, and then later I find out that he didn't do something and he got in trouble for it. I'm like, you're confessing to something that you didn't even, you didn't do. And you knew you were going to get in trouble for it. And it's always so baffling to me that that's, but that seems like a good choice. I realize he's not purposely doing it, but that, that, that comes upon him to be a good choice, you know? Yeah. 
people with these brain-based impairments, again, have just a hard time kind of making sense of things and, mm -hmm. and things get jumbled up. And sometimes our memory, when we want to retrieve something, that can be kind of jumbled up depending on the severity of the brain injury. Again, we all do it from time to time, but certain brains, certain disorders are more prone to this. So someone with already an underlying memory problem may be more prone to this. People with executive functioning impairments may be more prone. And if you have a child that has a neurodevelopmental disorder, they have executive function impairments. That's at the core of most neuro, neurodevelopmental disorders, ADHD, autism, FASD. If you're ever working with someone that's had frontal lobe impairment from like getting hit in the head, tripping and falling and hitting their head and blacking out, a car accident, getting hit in the head with a baseball, any kind of frontal lobe impairment could contribute to this in some cases as well. For some individuals, people may confabulate too to really preserve a sense of their identity and self-esteem. You may see this more in people that have had traumatic brain injuries. So prior to the brain injury, they were pretty competent. They were able to hold a job. They did well in relationships. After the brain injury, in some cases, maybe they can't hold a job anymore. Their relationships are falling apart. They have very low self-esteem, but they confabulate unintentionally to boost up their self-esteem. You may see that in some cases. Mm -hmm. If you ever work with people that seem to have a great deal of confusion, high levels of confusion could be a triggering event for confabulation as well. In this research literature, it also talks about memory distrust. So you and I walking down the street again, we see a car accident. I know that you have a really good memory. I don't trust my memory. I rely on what you say, and then I go by what you say, and now I encode that into my memory. Have you ever worked with anyone that just doesn't trust their memory and goes by what everybody else says and doesn't really come up with their own opinion? So it's called memory distrust. And if someone's being interviewed in any kind of high-stress situation, that could trigger confabulation. High-stress situations, interrogations, things like that. But even if a child's at school, gets in trouble, and is being interviewed by the principal or vice principal, the very nature of the power differential there, the child may be confused, maybe they're sleep-deprived, maybe they're really nervous, they may say anything that comes to their mind without realizing it may be completely inaccurate. And to a school teacher or school principal, they don't usually have training in any of this. They may just assume the child is absolutely lying and the kid gets in, in more trouble. So this can play out in a lot of ways. There's a lot of disorders where people may be more prone to confabulate. People with Alzheimer's, people with dementia, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, people with brain tumors, central nervous system kinds of issues. It's even been talked about within the context of schizophrenia and Warnicke's Korsakoff syndrome and multiple sclerosis and psychotic disorders. The list goes on and on and on. So certain populations may be more prone, but again, you or I, under the right circumstance, if we're sleep deprived, if we're under lots of stress, we're being interviewed in a high stress situation, 
we all could confabulate. And this is where it gets even more tricky is on the surface, it can, again, sound very, very believable, where it's very difficult to know if it truly happened. Or it can seem very absurd and delusional-like. It can almost look like a delusion. So it's a whole spectrum. It can just be completely fantasy tale, delusional. Just you can tell instantly they're making no sense. And then on the flip side of that, I've seen this too, where they sound so believable, so convincing. And I've had this happen to me many times where absolutely I believe them. And then later on, I talk to the caregiver, other professional, and they say, absolutely this did not happen they they never even left the state maybe someone invents a story that they went to disney world and had a wonderful time with their family and you later find out they've never even been to disney world i mean it can be very a big big story invented or it can be just very subtle little things as well so it's all over the map it gets pretty confusing um, i had a caregiver come and ask me if our daughter's birth mom was eaten by a coyote yeah. in her room. And she was like, it sounded so ridiculous, but she said it with such passion. She just, the story seems so ridiculous, but this lady who's an educated lady really believed her because of the way that she was just animated about it and was so passionate about the story she was telling. Did she believe the story after you talked to her? Was she convinced that this happened? My daughter? Yes. Yeah. So when we were questioning her about it, she was convinced it happened. And so we had to then convince her otherwise. But I'm curious if there's a way to, like, I know that my kids struggle with this. Is there a way to train them otherwise? Well, the research says treat co-occurring issues. That's a good starting point. So if they're dealing with depression, if they're dealing with anxiety or a drug problem or a sleep issue, treat all the comorbidities of co-occurring issues. That's important to do. Here's the tricky part. Sometimes if you repeatedly ask questions to your child who confabulates and you try to ask that same question over and over and over again, your child may shift their answer and create a new confabulated memory because if you're continuing to ask the same question, their brain is saying, oh, my first response is inaccurate. Let me switch. It's so hard to train a brain like this. So maybe it's like executive functioning training, anything we can do to promote better executive function. Anything you can do to promote better self-control or self-management or self-monitoring training, you can't go wrong there. But if you know your child has one of these disabilities and they have a long-standing pattern of confabulation, one of the best things we can do is self-education for us and all the people that work with that individual. And I hate to say it, teaching the professionals not to believe things on face value, fact check, verify, work with the whole team. If you notice too that you have a loved one who confabulates all the time and they haven't had any like neurocognitive testing, that might be helpful too because there could be some different things going on in their brain that may not be working properly. So the more you can figure out what's going on in their brain, then you can bring professionals in who specialize in maybe that area to target those areas and try to strengthen it as well. So that's what I'd say there, but fact check, 
verify, corroborate information. Don't come in heavy-handed at someone who confabulates and say you're lying and getting on their case because that doesn't usually help either. Try to stay curious, dig deeper, find the common themes in their story. Maybe the story's rooted in something, but it's grown over time into something just completely inaccurate. But in their mind, it probably makes sense to them. To you, it may sound crazy-making. So try to peel back the layers and figure out where did this happen? And for some kids, they could be inspired to confabulate, again, by overheard conversations at school. What's their social media use like, too? Are they online and they're reading stories or involved in fantasy or role-playing games? I mean, it could be inspired by real-life events. It could be inspired online. It could be inspired by a movie a song, it's very difficult to know where it actually came from. But just know if you have a child with like FASD or some really severe brain-based impairments, be on the lookout for this. It happens way more than we realize. Hey, let's take a quick break. Mama, I know that you are doing a great job, but maybe there's something you've been neglecting, like yourself or your marriage, the rest of your family or the systems in your home, or maybe you're just ready for a change but you don't know where to start. That's where we come in. Mama Systems can help you put systems in place so that your family is more organized, more peaceful, and more balanced. And so that you feel like you can get everything done that you need to get done during the day. We'll help make sure that you have a plan to advocate for your child in school and in the community, that you take care of yourself, your marriage, and the rest of your family, and that you have systems in place to help build teamwork mentality in your home and make daily life more manageable. All of this is doable and you deserve it, Mama. Check out mamasystems.net today. All right, back to our show. Um, one of the things that I've talked about before on this podcast was kind of educating the people that are around us and um, giving them information about FASD and kind of some of our kids' stories and one of the pieces I have in there is on confabulation, just as kind of a, hey, would you please, please come ask me before you go do anything crazy with, with CPS or anything like that. Like, come ask us what's really going on, because odds are, whatever story she just told you is not the truth. So just kind of helping explain that to them so that they know that we're not, we're not crazy, that, that the kid will sometimes make up stories. And um, I think that is a big piece of it because our teachers have seen that a lot too, where they're glad to know that because she'll walk out of the room and say, this teacher just pulled my shirt and ripped it. And you're like, ah, like, so I think that they need to know that information as well, just for their benefit and education. Absolutely. Any helping professional should learn about this topic. 100%. Doesn't matter what field you're in. You're probably coming into contact with folks that do this on a semi-regular basis. So interesting. Um, okay, can we move into suggestibility? Yeah, so anytime you study confabulation, you should also learn about suggestibility. Suggestibility and confabulation can really call into question the credibility and the reliability of the information that that person is sharing. Again, we're all suggestible on some level, so we need to be aware of that. But suggestibility is a truly multidimensional construct. Just think of a commercial you're watching. 
commercials use suggestibility all the time. You ever go through the drive-through? I hate when this happens, but I'm trained in it, so I know how to detect it. But is that a large you wanted for your drink? And they just imply, and they may we all and you weren't even thinking about getting a large drink, but your brain now you were suggested into doing that. So there's consumer suggestibility. It's all around us. There's physiological suggestibility. If I start yawning, the odds of you maybe starting to yawn could be pretty high. So that's a type of physiological suggestibility. The the kind that's most tricky and most dangerous is most likely in the forensic arena where this is introduced into the criminal justice system. It's been linked to false confessions, wrongful imprisonment, all of those things. But we're all guilty of this too. There's something called peer conformity. Are you ever in a group of people where you seem to be talked into doing things maybe you didn't think of? Or maybe you follow celebrities. I see this sometimes with people with FASD. They, they, have, they just love certain celebrities. So they'll just do whatever that person is doing. So they're highly suggestible in terms of what they watch, who they associate with. Gullibility needs to be taken into account. These are all things we'd want to consider with suggestibility. Think of suggestibility as our susceptibility to conform to something else. It could be because of my facial nod. I give the facial cue that maybe I'm not happy with what you said. So this can happen as a result of nonverbal cues. It could happen as a direct result of the language I use too. So we have to be very careful on using forced choice questions, true and false questions. That can be problematic as well. What... Basically ask yourself, what kind of influence does other people have on this child or teenager? How susceptible are they to influence by others? It could be social media. It could be you as the parent. It could be their friends. If they are highly influenced into shifting their belief about something, we need to be aware of that. So suggestibility could come from intentional sources where someone's intentionally trying to get them to change. It could be unintentional where maybe we roll our roll our eyes by mistake at the wrong time and that person just thinks we're unhappy with them. So then they change. It could be the result of memory distortion. So we need to be aware of like memory confusion. And it could be the result of a false memory creation, the confabulations we spoke about. So the suggestibility is a normal phenomenon. We're all guilty of this. We all are suggestible, again, under the right circumstance. It's been referred to as a dynamic process. So there's a lot of moving parts. It can involve individual variables that are inside of us, like low self-esteem, low self-efficacy. It could involve multiple external variables. So maybe someone has high social anxiety and they're being interviewed by multiple people at the same time. The very nature of just having multiple people in the room at the same time could be very, very problematic. People that deal with a high level of like uncertainty, where they have a hard time coping with uncertainty, that can trigger suggestibility. Most people I know at FASD do not do well with not knowing what to expect. So the very nature of just having a lot of uncertainty and place someone at a higher risk of vulnerability during any interview. 
any kind of pressure being put on that person overtly or covertly can trigger this as well. You probably want to be aware of interrogative suggestibility. That'd be a good search term people can use or investigative suggestibility. People would probably want to be aware of a term called the misinformation effect. You can go to YouTube and type that in. That comes out of Elizabeth Loftus' work. It has a lot to do with eyewitness testimony, but look at the mis misinformation effect. Within the legal arena, this can contribute to, again, incriminating statements, false confessions, unreliable witness testimony in clinical arenas, underdiagnosis, misdiagnosis, being prescribed medications for something they don't need, being not prescribed something for something they do need. So very, very interesting topic we need to be aware of. During an interview, there's a lot of things that can contribute to suggestibility. Any kind of bias someone brings into that interview, if you have already preconceived notions that that person is guilty or did something wrong, that is problematic. The very nature, again, of someone in a position of power, so someone in a uniform interviewing someone else, there's a power dynamic differential there. So that could be a factor. Repeating the same question over and over again can also trigger suggestibility because in their mind, they think what they said the first time was not accurate. So they want to people please. And we know that's quite common among folks with FASD. Acquiescence is a vulnerability we need to be aware of. Naivete and even compliance. This is where this is get this gets interesting. Suggestibility is something the person believes inside and they go along with it. Compliance, they go along with it, but they may not agree with it inside. Both are very problematic as well. And we also need to be aware, again, of how eagerness to please factors into this and the avoidance of not knowing how to handle conflict, change, worry, fear, uncertainty. These are all things that can absolutely trigger this. And if you look at the suggestibility research literature, there's literally thousands of studies on this looking at all domains. Let's just look at the child literature, for example. What does that say about what factors can make kids more vulnerable to this? Emotional immaturity. So maybe you have a teenager with FASD who's 16 years old chronologically, but that teenager functions as an eight-year-old emotionally and developmentally. So emotional immaturity is a big factor because most interviewers are just going to see this teenager in a body of a teenager in their age. They're not going to realize that that person may have a brain of an eight-year-old and not get certain kinds of words or vocabulary. Certain kinds of physical illnesses could place that person at greater vulnerability. So we need to be aware of what is that person dealing with physically, emotionally, behaviorally. People with attachment problems, there's some studies that show that disrupted attachment patterns could make some people more prone to be suggestible. Learning disabilities, memory problems, and even strained peer relationships and family relationships have also been linked to this. And then there's another topic I would just add to your list if you truly want to learn this. It's something called discrepancy detection. 
where sometimes people have a really hard time detecting discrepancies in questions being asked. People that have brains that work good, they can compare and contrast. They can detect maybe when things aren't adding up, we can question things. We can reject misleading information. People that have maybe neurological impairments might have a very difficult time detecting false information, things that aren't adding up. It just, we get a gut feeling something's off here. People with some of these impairments may lack that ability. And there's a good handful of studies too that show that sleep deprivation can trigger suggestibility. So the very nature of any of us not sleeping for a long period of time places us at greater risk of this as well. So here's just a very selfish question on my end. So I am about to have three little people moving into puberty with FASD who all struggle with everything that you just said. Everything that came out of your mouth is like, yes, I understand all of that. All makes sense to me. As you're speaking, I'm thinking, how do I educate my kids without like pushing towards suggestibility? Does that make sense? So if I'm like educating them on porn or any of the other lovely topics that we will be covering while we're talking about their changing bodies, how do I educate them and not be suggesting things to them? The fine balance and you could do all the right things by the book and it could still give them (laughs) new ideas. It's very difficult, but what would be recommended is utilizing executive functioning and metacognitive-based approaches, maybe through a skills-building lens, coaching, modeling, teaching, role-playing, rather than insight-based therapeutic approaches may be more tricky because people with some of these disorders have a really difficult time connecting the dots, planning for the future, answering how and why questions. So you're making things very concrete. There is an intervention that I really find fascinating out of the autism world. It hasn't been studied in the FASD world, but Lego therapy. They actually use Lego Legos and they do it in a group with kids with autism. If you go online and type in Lego-based therapy, there's books written on this and training programs. It's been shown to help improve critical thinking, social skills, these kind of things. That might be something to look into, but it's just difficult to know because it's never been studied with people with FASD. Finding a good therapist who's FASD informed that understands executive function can be very, very helpful as well. But maybe your child, maybe it's a child, you have a teenager and you really want to teach these skills but they have a brain of an eight-year-old. You really need to modify your approaches to match their emotional, developmental, and cognitive age over how old they are on paper. And before doing any intervention, this is just my opinion, if you haven't received or haven't had that individual do some cognitive testing to find out what parts of their brain are working properly, what parts aren't, we're kind of flying in the dark because what happens if that individual has some working memory deficits or information processing speed issues. We may not know that. And if we don't know that, how do we make changes to the way in which we deliver information and skills building? So those would be some things to think about. And I would probably tack on to that. You can't go wrong using attachment-based approaches 
and trauma-informed care approaches because most kids with FASD who've been adopted have had a lot of trauma before they came to you. Not always, but the research says most kids with FASD have also experienced trauma after birth, not just what happened in utero, but after that as well. So attachment-based approaches, trauma-informed care, and even probably, you know, I hate to keep adding on stuff, but the research says most people with FASD have sensory processing issues and language impairments too. So maybe working with those kind of professionals, getting an evaluation, because that does play into the way in which that person's brain takes in information and makes sense of it. So it's very multidisciplinary. It's typically a team approach. Not one professional typically has all of these skills. So it's really working with a group of people is the best approach. Okay. I have a lot of planning to do. It's a lot, lot to take in. It's a lot, <laughs> lot to take in, definitely. In monitoring, fact-checking, verifying, and what I'll say too is that in the general suggestibility literature, they also talk about theory of mind deficits contributing to this. And if you, I don't know if you've ever had any training in theory of mind, but there's several studies now in the FASD world that show that kids with FASD and adults also have theory of mind deficits. Theory of mind relates to perspective taking, our ability to understand internal mental states of other people. People with FASD have a hard time putting themselves in the shoes of another. There's components of empathy with this. It's mind reading, it's mentalization, it has a lot to do with a give and take relationship, how to read social cues, how to pick up on the fact that maybe that person doesn't want to be my friend. Theory of mind deficits is a big topic. I've given lots of podcasts on that. So people can go online and just Google theory of mind and my name. But there's a pretty good likelihood that if you have a child with FASD, they have theory of mind deficits. If you have a child with autism, 100% of people with autism have theory of mind deficits. It's a big topic. It relates to critical thinking, give and take relationships, how kids get along with other kids on the playground. As adults, how do we get along working with people in groups? I mean, it's a very important critical cognitive skill to be aware of. And if you can teach theory of mind early on, that can be another intervention to try. Okay. Well, I need to do more research then. I'm excited to learn about that. Yes. Um, okay. Well, I'm so grateful for your time again today, Jared. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for educating us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. I know. I'm going to keep having you back because I learned so much every time you come. Is there anything else you want to share? It's a lot of stuff I throw at people. It probably feels overwhelming at first, but the more you can learn about all these topics, you, the you'll start connecting the dots more of how this relates to that. And you realize that you have to tackle this in a multidisciplinary way. And there's no other way to do it, in my opinion. And once you start understanding these critical topics, I think better outcomes will happen. I'd, I'd be shocked if they don't, but it does take a lot of work and intentionality. And for caregivers, I can understand how it can be overwhelming. So self-care is important. Be aware of parental burnout. Get join support groups. Take good care of yourself too. I mean, these it can be overwhelming. There's no doubt about it. 
Yeah, it is, especially living with it on a day-to-day basis. Yes. It's a lot. Okay, one more time, will you tell people where they can find you? You can share my email with folks. If you just Google my name or go to YouTube, numerous podcasts with different groups all the time. I do tons of trainings for professional groups all around the country. I do consultation with group homes, lawyers, family members. So do all kinds of work in a lot of areas. My main areas of expertise are fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, autism, brain injuries. Do a lot of work in the area of fire setting and forensic mental health topics as well. Okay. Well, I'm so grateful, Jared. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me back. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.